All right. Well, last week we talked about the, the Christian and the social order and how we interact with the world in which we live and that God has called us to be salt and light in our culture and what that looks like in, in different issues and in practical ways. And so we're going to kind of continue on that about one specific area in which we need to be salt and light. Now, people today often talk about this culture war that we're in and Lots of times in popular media, Christians are, are put forth as the instigators of this culture war. But, you know, I, I think nothing can be further from the truth. We didn't instigate this. We, we're on the defensive side of this conflict. We are fighting for the values and beliefs that we hold dear, that we believe has made America the freest, most prosperous nation in human history. I believe that the foundation of American greatness is the American family. And I think that's why it is ground zero in this culture war. And the preemptive strike did not come from us, but from those who are seeking to tear down the importance of family, to redefine family, to come between parents and their children. Just think with me for a minute about the shifting battle lines of this culture war over the decades. In the 60s and 70s, it was free love and no-fault divorce and unrestricted access to abortion on demand. In the 80s, the welfare system further incentivized single parenting, particularly in urban settings. The 90s hookup culture normalized couples living together outside of marriage. And, of course, in the last 20 years, we've seen homosexuality go from just being tolerated to being accepted and affirmed and celebrated. Same-sex marriage legalized and the transgender ideology indoctrinating our children in the lie that gender doesn't matter, that biology isn't real, and that parents are their enemies. The importance and value of family is being replaced with this notion that children belong to everyone, to the village, to the state. More than ever, I believe it's incumbent on God's people to present a clear biblical view of God's purpose and plan for the family. You know... One of the areas in which our world, our culture, most needs the preserving influence of salt and the illumination of the light is in these issues involving family, involving marriage and sexuality and parenting and children. And so Article 18 of the Baptist Faith and Message helps to summarize this purpose and plan of God. Let's look at it together. God has ordained the family as the foundational institution of human society. It is composed of persons related to one another by marriage, blood, or adoption. Marriage is the uniting of one man and one woman in covenant commitment for a lifetime. It is God's unique gift to reveal the union between Christ and His church and to provide for the man and the woman in marriage the framework for intimate companionship, the channel of sexual expression according to biblical standards, and the means for procreation of the human race. The husband and wife are of equal worth before God since both are created in God's image. The marriage relationship models the way God relates to His people. A husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. He has the God-given responsibility to provide for, to protect, and to lead his family. A wife is to submit herself graciously to the servant leadership of her husband, even as the church willingly submits to the headship of Christ. 
She, being in the image of God, as is her husband, and thus equal to him, has the God-given responsibility to respect her husband and to serve as his helper in managing the household and nurturing the next generation. Children, from the moment of conception, are a blessing and a heritage from the Lord. Parents are to demonstrate to their children God's pattern for marriage. Parents are to teach their children spiritual and moral values and to lead them through consistent lifestyle example and loving discipline to make choices based on biblical truth. Children are to honor and obey their parents. Now, I want to begin this morning with three clarifying statements. They are in your order, in your bulletin notes there. Uh, the first is that God created marriage for all people, not just Christians. Marriage was God's idea from the beginning. He created marriage. He's the author of marriage. It's His plan for structuring the relationship between men and women. In Matthew 19 alone, two times in that passage, Jesus refers to marriage as being in the beginning. So the church did not create marriage. Rather, we recognize it as God's gift to His image bearers. The state did not create marriage. But it can recognize and promote and defend it as a societal good. So the first thing is that marriage has been given to all humanity. Secondly, while sin has damaged and distorted marriage and the family as God intended it to be, it has not negated God's design nor intent for marriage. So a broken and a failed marriage is not the fault of the institution of marriage. If anything, it highlights the importance of healthy marriages. Despite being tainted by sin in a fallen world, the institution of marriage still plays a vital role in restraining evil in society. Marriage holds us accountable, helps us be responsible, teaches us to put the needs of others before our own, redefines happiness, not in terms of my desires and, and my dreams, but in other people's well-being. So even though marriage has been tainted by our sinful and broken world, it does not negate God's purpose and intent for it. And third, marriage can proclaim God's redemptive purpose. And we're going to look at that here in Ephesians chapter 5. If you want to go ahead and turn in Ephesians 5, here Paul gives a gospel perspective on marriage, offering the world a picture of the love and faithfulness that Christ has for His church. One book I read a few years ago on the biblical basis of marriage said this. It's a great quote. I'm just going to quote it in its entirety here. Marriage does not lose its importance in the New Testament. Rather, it is clarified. As created, marriage enabled male and female to reflect God's image together. As redeemed, marriage reflects Christ's love for the church. As created, marriage enabled God's image bearers to spread His rule over all the earth. As redeemed... Marriage disciples both current and future generations to spread the gospel over all the earth. As created, marriage is the foundation of social order. As redeemed, marriage commits us to restrain our passions and to live for the good of others. So with these basic truths and ideas under our belt, I want us to turn to today's focal passage as we consider what we believe and value about the family. Now, Ephesians 5 is probably one of the most misunderstood passages in the New Testament. So to help us with the context and the purpose of what Paul says here, 
Let's start in the first two verses. Look at Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. These verses set the theme for the rest of the book of Ephesians for chapters 5 and 6. Now look at verses 8 through 10. For you were once darkness... But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. And then go down with me to verse 15. Pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is, and don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit. So the verses then, beginning of verse 22, where Paul talks about marriage and the family, we see ultimately are a part of this broader conversation about imitating God, living lives of Christ-like love, shining the light of His truth in a dark world and living carefully and wisely in these evil days by being filled with the Spirit. So while marriage is created by God for all people as a part of His common grace, Paul is specifically writing to us as believers and how our marriages can help point the broken culture around us to Jesus and how marriage ultimately finds its fulfillment in Him. Our marriages must be Spirit-filled marriages to make a difference, to be salt and light in this culture. So let's begin by first looking at the spirit-filled wife. Look with me at verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. And then look down at verse 33 to sum up Each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. So in this passage, and we'll look at what he says to husbands. He says a lot more to husbands than he does to wives, by the way. In in, in all this, we see that Paul gives roles and expectations and duties to both the husband and the wife, giving us a picture of two equal yet distinct people who are working together as one. Husbands and wives share equal worth and value as created in the image of God, but they both have different roles within the marriage relationship. Think of it as couples in a dance. One leads and one follows. One initiates, the other responds. You have to have both of them to do that dance, and when both of them know their roles, it's a beautiful dance. So Paul here offers some instructions to wives, and then an illustration. Let's look at the instruction. So your first two fill-in-the-blanks there are submit and respect. Paul's instruction to wives are to submit and respect. I want to begin with the latter, mentioned there in verse 33. Why do you think Paul instructs wives to respect their husbands? Well, the Greek word used here is a little bit stronger than what the English word For respect means it's the same word used to describe how we should revere the Lord. And we should consider the Lord as being awesome. So wives, Paul is saying, aren't your husbands awesome? (laughs) I heard an amen and I heard an oh my. So 
Sarah's the, the source. What is the source of this reference for the husband? It's not the person of the husband. It's the position. Okay, sort of like we might say that we are to respect the office of president, even if you don't necessarily like who's holding it at the moment. So wives, you may not uh, like your husband in the moment, but you respect the position of the role he plays in your family. And we'll look at that in a little bit, why that role of a husband is worthy of that awe and respect. So he tells wives to respect, to revere that role of husband, that office that God has given this man to you in. But the first word is the one that causes people the most heartburn. It's that word submit. We don't like that word today. But it's a biblical word. And in fact, five times in the New Testament, wives are told to submit to their husbands. Now, one of the problems is, is that we've confused sort of the traditional Western view of marriage with biblical ideals for marriage. We think of a submissive wife as like a June cleaver for those of you over the age of 50. You know who that is. Vacuuming the house in her high heels and her pearl necklace, Right? Or we think of a submissive wife as being milk toast. She's weak, timid, unassertive, always answering her man with yes, dear. That is not what biblical marriage or submission is about. It's not what it's about. The Greek word for submit is hupotasso, and it means to come under, to arrange under, to subordinate. It's a military term that describes the way the soldiers relate to their commanding officers. A good soldier has to surrender control to their leader, has to put the good of the army and the good of the mission ahead of themselves. And that's how we should all live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's how we should all relate to one another as fellow Christians. Look back at verse 21. Before Paul talks about wives in verse 21, he says, submit to one another in the fear of Christ. Submission is an umbrella under which all of us come as followers of Jesus Christ. Paul often referred to himself as a slave to everyone or as a slave to the church. He was practicing Christian submission, considering others before himself, in humility, sacrificing and serving others in the name of Jesus. And so that means that submission isn't about mindless obedience without question. Submission isn't about inferiority. In fact, Jesus described himself as being submitted to God the Father. So unless we want to commit the heresy that some used to commit thousands of years ago, we talked about this, we talked about the Trinity, would you say that Jesus, God the Son, is inferior to God the Father? Of course not. Of course He's not. So you cannot attribute inferiority to a wife because she submits to her husband. Submission isn't a matter of worth. It's not about intelligence or talent or anything like that. It's a structure within the family, established by God, and a structure in which God has placed Himself because God the Son is in submission to God the Father. So a wife is called to follow her husband's loving leadership because his first priority should be the safety and well-being of his family. And as we're soon going to see, the husband must be willing to die for his wife. And if he's willing to die for his wife, he should at least be the first to apologize 
and the first to forgive and the first to sacrifice and to serve. But we also can't overlook the context of marriage here. Paul isn't saying that women in general are supposed to be submissive to men in general. No, he says the husband is the head of his wife. This is within the context of marriage. This doesn't apply to any other context. It doesn't apply to politics. doesn't apply to business. Paul is talking specifically about the marriage relationship. And it's a voluntary submission. Christian wives are to freely and responsibly follow the loving leadership of a husband who is himself faithfully following Jesus. That's the context. And again... This has nothing to do with American traditional tropes about the husband on the couch asking his wife to make him a sandwich. That's not what this is about. It doesn't have anything to say about who cooks and who cleans or who mows the lawn or pays the bills. It doesn't dictate that the wife be a stay-at-home mom or preclude her from bringing home more bacon than her husband. It doesn't address those issues either. A biblical marriage simply means... The husband serves as the head and his wife as his co-equal partner, submitting to the loving leadership of her husband as he submits to the leading of the Spirit of God. And so this structure not only serves a practical purpose for making decisions and for leadership in the family, it also serves as a powerful spiritual illustration. So let's look at the illustration. The illustration is of Christ... And his church. Look back at verse 32. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Now, in our culture, romantic relationships are held up as like the ultimate goal. But biblically speaking, the relationship that we have with Jesus is our supreme purpose and goal. Marriage isn't the goal, it's the illustration of the highest relationship that we can have, and that is our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so God ordained marriage to be a picture of this good news that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us to make us right with God. Here in verse 32, Paul calls it a profound mystery. In other words, he's saying, this is awesome. This is mind-blowing. When God instituted the family in the very beginning, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, He had Christ and the church in mind. That is mind-blowing. That is a mystery. And this illustration really gives us three things. It first gives us the ultimate picture of marriage. The ultimate picture of marriage. Spirit-filled wives are to be a picture of a spirit-filled church. The husband is to be a picture of Christ who is the head of his bride, the church. And, if, as you, as, and we'll look at these in a little bit. As you look at verses 25 through 29, we see what kind of a head Jesus is. He loves the church in verse 25 and gave himself up for the church. In verse 26, he nurtures the church into holiness and cleanses the church of sin. In verse 27, he presents the church as a beautiful bride. And in verse 29, he provides and cares for the church. Our marriages are to be the picture of this relationship, of who the church is to be and who Jesus is. Secondly, it illustrates the ultimate purpose of marriage. What is the ultimate purpose of marriage? It's to glorify Christ. That's the ultimate purpose. Everything in this passage, Paul points to Christ. 
in, in verse 22, he says, as unto the Lord. In verse 25, as Christ loved the church. In verse 29, as Christ does for the church. Everything here points to Jesus. You know, we often get hung up on marital issues. And I, sometimes have couples come and I, I talk with them through issues. We talk about conflict resolution and communication and finances and parenting styles and personality differences. And, and while these can be significant and important issues for couples to work through, what if we made the glory of Christ our number one priority? How many of those issues would resolve themselves? If the number one priority in our lives and marriage was the glory of Christ. So the ultimate issue in your marriage is this. Are you surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus? That's the ultimate issue for any of us. Whether we're married or not, are we surrendering in every area of our life to the Lordship of Jesus for the glory of God? Because if I am the starting point of how I think about my marriage, I'm starting in the wrong place. My marriage ultimately isn't about me or my daughter or even my wife. Ultimately, it's about the glory of Jesus Christ. It is for Him, to Him, and by Him. And what if we viewed our marriages this way, as offerings of love to God, as we forgive and serve and love our spouse? Can you imagine the power of that witness? If the world looked at the church and saw us like that. The ultimate purpose of marriage and finally the ultimate hope for marriage. The biggest problem in marriage isn't lack of time. It's not clashing personalities. It's not dealing with a toddler or a teenager. And I'm beginning to learn sometimes those feel like the same thing. The biggest problem in marriage is sin. It's sin. And the solution to sin is not to work harder at it. It's not trying to be a better person and pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. No, it's surrendering to the grace of God. Because Jesus is patient and forgiving because He is the merciful giver of second chances. When your wedded bliss becomes more of a wedded mess, there's hope. You can turn to Jesus Christ. He is the Creator and the Savior of marriage. I believe He can save any marriage. Since our marriages are meant to point us to Jesus, let's take them to Jesus as our ultimate hope. But it takes two to tango, doesn't it? And so we've looked at what Paul has to say to wives, the instructions and the illustration, but let's look at what he has to say to the Spirit-filled husband. Look with me at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her to make her holy cleansing her with the washing of water by the Word. He did this to present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it just as Christ does for the church since we are members of His body. For this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. 
So just as the wives are to reflect the church in their submission, husbands are to reflect Christ in their love. Pastor John Stott explains the similarity that really between submission and love, as Paul talks about it. They're not that different. He says, what does it mean to submit? It is to give oneself up to somebody. What does it mean to love? It is give up oneself for somebody. To submit is to put the other person's will ahead of your own. To love is to put the other person's needs ahead of your own. Again, the wife's role is not less than the husband's. It's just different. And it's complementary. Like dance partners. While the wife submits and the husband loves, while those are two sides of the same coin, I do want us to look at what it means for the husband to love his wife as Jesus loves the church. And first we see it's a sacrificial love. In verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her. Think about all that Christ endured on the cross for us. The humility, the shame, the torture, the pain, the agony. He died one of the most painful, disgraceful deaths imaginable. Why did He do that? For love. For God so loved you and I. But Jesus didn't just display sacrificial love on the cross. He demonstrated it earlier that night in the upper room as He took on the form of a servant and washed His disciples' feet. Here Jesus is, the head of the church, yes, but Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve. He didn't come to lord His authority over us. He came in humility. Such should be the sacrificial love of the Spirit-filled husband, serving in humility, laying down his pride, taking up his cross, and denying himself. Men, marriage is a call to die. Some of you are like, you're telling me. But it is. It's a call to die. It may mean sacrificing your schedule and career ambitions. It may mean putting something you want to do on the back burner for the good of your family. It might mean crucifying your flesh so you can be faithful to your wife. It means being willing to admit when you're wrong, asking for forgiveness and making restitution. It means being a servant leader. Listen, you can't be a passive husband and love your wife as Jesus loves the church. You must be proactive and intentional in how you love your wife and your family. It's a sacrificial love. Secondly, it's a sanctifying love. In verses 26 and 27, Paul talks about how Jesus cleansed the church, washed the church by the water of the Word, made her holy to present her as without spot or wrinkle, but as holy and blameless. Whenever we come to faith in Jesus Christ, His sacrifice cleanses us of our sins so that we are spotless, we are blameless and holy before God. Not because of us, but because of what Jesus has done for us. But Jesus doesn't just cleanse us once and for all, When we come to faith in Him, He is cleansing us daily. He is sanctifying us. He is washing us through His Word, shaping our character so that we can bear the fruit of the Spirit. A husband should love his wife in such a way that it helps her to grow in Christ-likeness. Husbands, ask yourself, 
Is my wife more like Jesus because I'm her husband or in spite of the fact I'm her husband? Husbands, we must be concerned for the spiritual health and growth of our families, especially our wives. Lead your family to read the Scriptures and pray together. Lead them to regularly worship together. Lead them share and, and discuss with them what God is saying and doing in your life. Pray about decisions together. Walk the disciples' path together. It's a sanctifying love. And finally, it's a satisfying love. Look at verse 28. Paul says, In the same way husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of His body. And then verse 33, he says, Each one of you is to love his wife as himself. Paul here is taking the second greatest commandment. Remember the second greatest commandment Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself? And he's applying it to the family. He's saying, husbands, the way you love your wife as yourself is that you provide for and you love and you nourish and you care for your wife as you would for yourself. But then Paul here in verse 31 points all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You see, the husband's love for his wife not only reflects Jesus' love for, for us on the cross, but it also fulfills God's ultimate purpose and plan in marriage and that that's the two become one flesh. That means that if you were satisfying the needs of your spouse, you're ultimately satisfying your own needs because the two have become one. You're partners. You're not competitors. You're to be as one. So if you long for intimacy and security and happiness and health, are you working to provide those for your wife? Husbands, are you nurturing, nur- nourishing your wife? Are you cherishing her? Do you compliment her and admire her and seek to intentionally build her up? If you're like me, we could all do a better job of those things. If you love your wife as your own body, shouldn't you be willing to sacrifice career dreams and times for hobby and anything for her good? We've looked at Paul's instruction for the Spirit-filled wife and the Spirit-filled husband. And last, I want us to briefly look at spirit-filled parents and children. Look with me at Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. And then here he quotes from the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother, which is the first command with a promise. And here's the promise. So that it may go well with you and that you may have long life in the land. In other words, you better honor your parents if you want to live. (laughs) My mom used to say, I brought you into this world, I could take you out. (laughs) Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. The Baptist Faith and Message article we read earlier affirms that from the moment of conception, children are a heritage and a blessing from the Lord. Now, it's a shame that that's a controversial statement today. But since Roe v. Wade was handed down... Close to 50 million unborn babies have been ripped from their mother's wombs. And I believe that we are reaping the tragic consequences of devaluing the smallest and most helpless among us. If unborn children are disposable, 
Treat it as an inconvenience, a parasite to be exterminated. Why are we surprised when children and the elderly and the poor and the sick and those with disabilities are also undervalued and abused and neglected and even killed? There is a trickle-down effect to this devaluation of the smallest among us. And as Christian parents, what is our duty? Our duty is to teach our children God's truth, to surround them with His Word, to present the Gospel to them and lead them in faith to Jesus, to disciple them and help them establish healthy spiritual habits like worshiping with other believers, reading God's Word and praying and serving. And children, as Ben talked about in his children's message, God has called you to be obedient to your parents and honor them. And as he said, honoring your father and your mother is more than just simply obeying, obeying them. It's not just an action, it's an attitude of the heart. God doesn't bless grumpy obedience. Can I get an amen from some moms and dads in here? God doesn't bless grumpy obedience. To honor your parents means you speak to them respectfully. It means you defer to their judgment. It means that you trust them as you obey what they say, even if you don't understand it or like it. And I know that everything in our culture runs contrary to everything I've said here this morning. But God has not called us to blend into our culture. He's called us to stand out in our culture. He's called us to be salt and light, a preserving influence in a dark and decaying world. Now I want to leave us with three things that we can do to help us further be salt and light when it comes to this issue of the family. First is we need to clearly define it. We must know what God says and be careful to hold to God's definition of family no matter how the world wants to redefine it. And I understand the sentiment. I understand that we talk about close friends like they're family. The Bible even uses the language of family to describe us as the church. We are the family of God. We're the FBC family. But we must be clear that when we're talking about family in the truest sense of the word, that it is, it is meant to describe the basic building block of human society, instituted by God at creation as one husband and one wife and raising any children that God has entrusted to them, whether by adoption or by blood. That is the family, the home. We need to clearly define that. Secondly, we need to confidently declare it. We need to be vocal about God's truth on this point. Like There, there are lots of things we, de- we can declare to our culture. But if we fail to declare to our culture where it is worse deviating from the truth, then we are abdicating our role as the salt and the light. We need to be shining the light where things are the darkest. We need to be salt where the decay is the worst. And I think this issue fits both of those bills. We need to confidently declare it. And third, most importantly, we need to consistently demonstrate it. When we as Christians fail to practice what we preach, to demonstrate what we declare, the world starts to ignore everything we say we stand for, doesn't it? It doesn't want to listen. Remember, salt that is no good is cast out. The Greek word there when it says salt is no good is the Greek word moreno. It's where we get the word moron from. Jesus is saying that salt that has lost its saltiness is moronic. It's foolish. It's useless. 
In other words, when we who are indwelt by the Spirit of God, who are entrusted with the truth of God, when we fail to be that preservative agent in the world, the world looks at us as fools. When we allow ourselves to be compromised and deluded, the world looks at us and says, you're useless. We need to clearly define what the family is. We need to confidently declare God's truth about the family and we need to consistently demonstrate it. What about you? What about your family this morning? How does your marriage measure up to God's standard? Are you being a spirit-filled wife? Spirit-filled husband? How's your parenting these days? Probably like me, you say, I could use a little work. Children, are you spirit-filled in obeying your parents and honoring them? I'm proud to pastor a church that values family. We love family here. We believe in the family. We want to affirm and encourage and equip husbands and wives and moms and dads to reflect the beauty and glory of Christ to a world so desperately in need of seeing it. Maybe God is calling you to unite with this church family and say, I want to stand with a group of believers who believe in God's truth about the family. I want to come to a church that's going to help me and my family to thrive and grow. And I want to be a part of mentoring and blessing and encouraging other families. We welcome you to come this morning and unite with our church. But the most important question I have for you today is do you know the gospel truth that marriage is meant to illustrate? Do you know the Jesus that loved you so much that He hung on a cruel Roman cross and shed His blood for you? The sinless Son of God taking your guilt and shame upon Himself so He could present you as pure and blameless and holy before God. If you don't know the Jesus that did that for you, you can't be a Spirit-filled husband, a Spirit-filled wife, Spirit-filled parents, or a Spirit-filled child if you don't first have the Spirit of Christ in you. And you do that by admitting your sin, turning from it, and in faith asking Jesus to forgive you and to help you walk in His goodness and grace. Would you do that this morning? Would you come this morning and put your faith in Jesus Christ? He can transform your life. He can forgive any sin of your past. He can heal any brokenness in your life and in your relationships today. He can begin to set you on the right path. Would you stand with me and pray and come as God's Spirit leads you this morning? Father God, we thank You for Your love for us. We thank You for the gift of marriage and the gift of children. And Father, we, we admit and confess to You. Every one of us in this room has to admit and confess to You. If we're married, if we're parents, if we're children, and I think we're all children in this room, God, we could all do better. We've all failed. We've all messed up. Our lives have all failed to point people to You. You're the God of second chances and fresh starts. And I pray, God, that you would help us to confess to you our weaknesses, our faults, and our sins, and to receive freely the forgiveness that you give. God, you don't want us to walk around in guilt or shame because of a failed marriage, because uh, we've not been the kind of parents that we should be, because we've put career over family. God, you want to set us free from our past, from our sin and our shame. You want to help us to thrive in the relationships you've given us. And so, Lord, if there's anyone here today that needs to reaffirm and rededicate themselves to You, to come in faith and receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. 
to unite with this church, I pray you would help us to step out in faith, to honor you by trusting and obeying what you have to say, even if we don't necessarily understand it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.